Episode 3, Adventure of a Lifetime. Grace and peace to you, friends. Do you think of valleys as a good or bad place? When I think of land valleys, I think they're good. I think of Yosemite Valley, a beautiful lush place with a crisp, cool stream, a place of joy and refreshment and wonder. Zion National Park in Utah, where the colorful crevices and valleys offer a little shade as a respite from the hot sun and are beautifully patterned. I remember a little valley, a little holler at my grandmother's family's old homestead in Colony Mountain in Lutherville, Johnson County, Arkansas. The summer heat and humidity were softened by this forest wonderland and a coolness set in from these mists of slow waterfalls. They are all beautiful in their own ways. Perhaps you think about the valleys in terms of the Grand Canyon, where the lower you descend, it gets more intemperate, hotter in the summer, deathly cold in the winter. People often descend to the valley to the peril of their lives, purely from the strenuous nature of the path. When I think of the valleys in my life, they are cold and inhospitable, lonely, no shelter, no protection, but wide open spaces that leave me feeling vulnerable. I heard someone say once that today's mountaintop is tomorrow's valley. And honestly, I wish I could believe that to be true. Things don't happen that fast in my life. I think of life in terms of seasons. Sometimes the seasons are longer than a couple months, maybe years. And it's here in the valley that we meet the amazing Moses. So epic, he's known only by his first name. If you are just joining me, I have two previous episodes building up to this moment with Moses. I get a little excited thinking about how seemingly random events can pull together to something miraculous. Some would say in the self-help crowd, it's the universe that has your back and wants you to succeed. Maybe his vision board needed some more details to get him where he wanted to be so he could operate from vision. Maybe he needed another mentor who's been there, done that, a coach that would guide Moses to epicness. Right? That's all advice readily available from the self-help movement. We are about to get to the middle of his story where it says Moses was contented. Content? This guy? Do you know many epic people who say they're content? It seems to me that generally people who are doing epic things are always hungry for more. This epic man, Moses, lived about 3,500 years ago, and his life is recorded in the Bible. The Bible is often overlooked as a source of wisdom for everyday life. In the quest for help to live an amazing life, the self-help movement invites you to look to yourself for wisdom, for guidance, for a true north. But they also invite things like mysticism and practices around manifestation, ideal vision of your life, etc. You're putting your faith in these practices and the mystic modalities themselves when you do these things. You are likely guided by people who practice and teach these if you are involved in the self-help movement. They also include channeling disembodied spirits for wisdom. For example, the teachings of Abraham, a group of beings channeled by Esther Hicks. These are widely circulated in the Law of Attraction self-help crowd. Many New Agers may say they don't believe in or acknowledge God or spiritual things. Like, I can believe these so-called spirits are real and have something important to impart to me, but... I don't believe that God is real or at work in the world. But when you're looking for a formula for a successful life, the Bible makes its intentions clear. In John 10:10, 10, 10, God's son, Jesus Christ said, I have come 
that you may have life and have it to the full. He wants you to have a full abundant life. And we're told over and over how to have that life. To some Christians, that may seem like a gross oversimplification. So I ask for a little grace as I unpack these concepts. Before Jesus Christ lived, there was a guy named Moses. And we can learn so much from him about life, leadership, people, decisions, God, all things we wrestle with. Let's look at Moses' life a little further and understand the circumstances that led up to that one time he was contented. So, back to the valley with Moses. He wants to be a leader of his people and he feels equipped and possibly even called at this time. He had been adopted into the life of a prince from a family of slavery. He had two moms who loved him and poured into his life in completely different ways. At 40 years old, he dips his toe in this new world of leading his people. First test of leadership fails as he chooses to murder and try to be secretive about it. The next day he goes to town again and St. Moses is called out. Who appointed you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Leadership requires wisdom and he just didn't have much of it. At least not enough to accomplish the vision at hand. In that moment, he flees his vision, his family, his identity, possibly even his calling, knowing that justice would prevail for that dead Egyptian. He likely traveled in excess of 400 miles and happened upon this one well, this one situation, this family. When you're called, you can't even stop yourself because you have this internal drive to do the thing. For Moses, that was to lead, which means also to protect. He finds himself in the desert in the land of Midian, and he sees a scuffle. Seven women were trying to water their animals, and they were being harassed and driven away by shepherds. This apparently was not the first time. The customs of polite society, like waiting your turn, are easily put aside when we don't value other people. Out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, that's exactly what happened to those women. Again, he happens to be at the right place at the right time. Just a little coinkity, right? Moses intervenes, one man against these shepherds, and he drives them away. This injustice was not met with death. Hallelujah, Moses is learning. When you approach life as a school, you're in college, you're getting a bachelor's in wisdom. But I don't think this was Moses' mindset. We'll see later on that this was a grave mistake for Moses and it cost him a lot of years. Being unprepared for travel in the desert sounds like a mistake, but he had fear driving him forward. Fear can drive you into so many situations that you likely would not choose otherwise. The Bible tells us over and over, do not fear. If you're going to put your hand on the burner of a stove, then yeah, maybe fear is an appropriate way to caution your behavior. Maybe Moses had a legitimate concern that he would be ended by the Pharaoh for the murder he committed. Oftentimes, we just have vague fears that hold us back, though. Some of my vague fears that hold me back, like um, I'm not articulate enough. My thoughts just ramble on and on. Vague fears that we leave unchallenged, that I've left unchallenged. To Moses's credit, he at least took a first step, a second step, a third into his vision for his life. So many of us don't even do that. On the inside, we scream, I'm scared. Sometimes we take a step and a second and a third. We say, nah, this ain't for me. We got haters. We got trolls. We got competitors. We got dwindling resources. Can't make payroll. Nah, that ain't for me. If you haven't noticed, I'm excellent at impersonations. And let's get back to Moses. 
After an intense time, fleeing the past, fearing the mistakes would catch up to him, the dangers of the desert and the sheer environmental pressures of heat, beating sun rays, cooking his skin, no water. Moses could have given up. He maybe even wrestled with it. What good is it? They will catch up with me. What can I do by myself? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I always mess things up. If those were his thoughts, it was a miracle that he survived the desert journey. We might make a bad situation so much worse with our thought life. The self-help movement would say, meditate, do more affirmations, add crystals to improve your energy. The wisdom of the Bible teaches us some very interesting things about our thought life. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we take every thought captive to obey Christ through divine power. Maybe you aren't there yet. It's a process of renewing the mind, and I'm definitely a work in progress. But isn't it interesting that God points out that our thoughts are controllable? To say it another way, optional. Take every thought captive sounds very active and controlled. Maybe it feels like trying to calm down an 18-month-old having a full-blown temper tantrum, but he literally would not tell us to do something that we couldn't do. It is possible, even if it doesn't feel like it. But it takes practice. Philippians 4.9 tells us that. Sometimes we're so busy telling ourselves that something isn't possible instead of reminding ourselves that it's a possibility. I have been there more recently than I'd like to admit, but I'm practicing. I'm experimenting on ways to recognize it earlier so that it influences before an action, not just afterwards. The wisdom of the Bible teaches us a way to handle those intense moments, an alternative thing we could do that I call CPR. CPR starts with confession. The good news is it's not necessary to wait for a priest. All you do is confess what's going on in your head. Seriously, just do it. Dear God, I'm having these thoughts about this situation. Just talk to him about it. Try to articulate it fully. We can take mental shortcuts and not really get to the meat of our thoughts. It's the reason it's difficult to explain to somebody why you're mad at them. Like when I have an argument with my husband, sometimes I'm really angry. You know how the story goes. Um, he's being a little salty, a little withdrawn. I'm gathering evidence to support my theory. He does a couple things that really aggravates me. And then all of a sudden, I'm really angry. When I try to talk to him about it, he's asking me questions and I don't have good answers. He wants to understand really what he's done wrong, but I can't explain it. <laughs> and maybe come up with some real zingers on why they're so very wrong. But once you get to explaining, it doesn't sound right or it doesn't come out right. You have all these mental shortcuts and emotions and they make it difficult for us to really get to the heart of what's really going on inside of us. So articulate your confession like you're really just explaining it to somebody, either audibly or written. And I would also suggest do it without judging yourself. Just be bare before God. After you confess, you profess. That's the P. When I profess, I remind myself of all the good that God has done in my life and get my mind off myself a bit. Have you ever considered how many minutes of the day you spend thinking about yourself? I believe many of us would be shocked by the accounting of it. 
Even being focused on our ideal vision keeps us thinking about me, myself. If we aren't careful, our days could be filled with thinking about ourselves, our preferences, our wants, how I've been wronged. Thinking constantly about yourself is the number one way to be miserable in your life. We aren't designed that way and it's all explained more fully in the Bible. So again, for CPR, you confess, you profess, then here's the biggie, you repent. That's the R. This is where we can get tripped up because even Christians struggle here. Repent means to turn away from, like a U-turn. Repenting signals in our brains that we aren't doing that anymore, not going that way anymore. Repenting is also very simply sorrow for sin and a call to abandon it. I think the word sin triggers some people like it sounds harsh, but really sin is harsh. The thought, I always mess things up, is me lying about myself. And I tell myself unkind things I probably wouldn't say to another person. I tell myself, oh, it's fine to give myself tough love, but I wouldn't say something unkind. Another lie, because boy, oh boy, make me sit in the doctor's office for over an hour and sometimes unkind things leak out of a stressful heart. If I'm accustomed to unkind things in the hours of my thought life, unkind things can be more likely said and done when other people are involved. I'm practicing better habits around compassion and kindness that starts with myself. So let's practice and apply this concept of CPR. If I were in Moses's sandals, I would say, of course, you have to deal with the murder thing. But since I haven't murdered anyone, and I'm guessing most of you have not either, the thought life is one that everyone struggles with. I would argue that the thought life is often what brings us to self-help. Supposing what Moses was thinking about the situation he was in, and he talked it over with God, confessing, really unpacked this, his thoughts about the situation. I already talked through some of his thoughts, but maybe they included, what can I do by myself? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? It may seem odd to confess the confusion of the next step. New beginnings can be frightening. Trust me, I know something about this. I'm trying to figure out my next steps too. The easiest thing to do in the world is to sit back and just worry and do nothing. As I do my confession, Maybe it's like when Moses does his confession, we realize how stressed out we are about the next step, the indecision around what life is going to look like and whether it's worth it to even continue. That sounds like a lot of worrying and the Bible has a lot to say about worrying. As Moses is figuring out the next step, he's really possibly eating himself alive with worry. How is he going to realize this without sorting through the thoughts? And what Moses is making that mean. It's vitally important to understand what we are making our thoughts mean. If it's the murder of an, an Egyptian that comes up in his thoughts, maybe Moses is thinking of the guy's kids growing up without a father. Those are just thoughts. We think the circumstances are facts, but maybe they aren't. Maybe the Egyptian was childless or, I don't know, a serial rapist. Would that change his perspective? We think our thoughts and circumstances are facts, and they may not be. Confession helps us sort it out with God's help. Just be bare before God. After all, you are already. So after confession, let's suppose he professed, focusing his thoughts, his mind on God for a while, what he's done and continues to do. I'm not so sure Moses was 
doing much professing at this time in his life. Let's continue to suppose that he got to repenting. If Moses's thoughts in the desert were, what can I do? Where can I go? Repenting may look like, God, I'm not trusting you with my life and it's a sin and I repent. All these things seem like they're going wrong and it's not a surprise to you. You can redeem the situation and bring beauty out of ashes. I can trust you with my life and I know that you have a calling in my life and are leading me to walk fully in it. You are empowering me with the Holy Spirit, equipping me to do the good work you've called me to do. You turn. That didn't seem too hard, did it? This is a stark contrast to the typical advice around getting your thinking straight. It gets the job done. In our flesh, our minds want to ruminate and continue with obsessive, unproductive thoughts in our flesh. It's just a lot harder to do that when we've gone through the CPR method. Maybe you aren't religious and it just seems like an awful lot of praying, leaning on a God you don't know very well or at all. Even Moses didn't know Father God very well either when they started having a relationship. Most of us got to know our best friend or significant other through talking to them. And talking to God is praying. It's reading and meditating on the Bible. It's learning more about God's character. So if you just want to be neighbors and say hey every once in a while, that's your option. It's all up to you. God's a gentleman and he's not going to keep asking you out if you've said no a bunch of times. He'll stop asking. That being said, may I remind you of how Moses started out. Full of piss and vinegar, literally. Ready to kickstart this thing of leading his people until we got to the first tough decision. The vision we have for our lives, our impact in the world, pales in comparison to what God has for you, what God has for you to do, to be. My favorite Bible verse is John 10, 10, and I'll say it over and over again. Jesus Christ, God's own son, said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now you can choose. You can do the vision board, the energy cleansings, the meditations. God healed people without those modalities. He does it even today. I can really relate to Moses' fleeing from fear, how he probably spent a lot of time in his head sorting through all the events and trying to figure out what they mean for his life, for his future. I've spent a lot of time focusing on this and really the detour is important because so many of us struggle with just being in our heads. Thinking is a good thing, except when it comes to the flesh, we do everything to excess. We have so much more to talk about when we get to this moment in Moses's life where he's contented. We are so close. It's really important that we understand a bit of Moses's before and after just to grasp the impact of this moment of contentedness. I myself am on a lifelong journey of contentedness. I think we can all learn something more about it. Stick with me in this series as we come to understand how the wisdom of the Bible can help us in our everyday life, in our families, our businesses, and our communities. It's an adventure of a lifetime. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and post about it on your social media. And please leave a rating and a review. To catch the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at AOA Lifetime. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Music title Soul Walking by Juanitos, used by the Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.